All right, we're going to continue our sermon series on Exodus, and I'll just be reading the passage from Exodus 25. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel, that they take from me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution from me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them, gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen, goat hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, akia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastpiece. And let them make a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all its furniture, so shall you make it. The word of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord, you have invited us into your presence to worship, to hear your word. Just pray that your word will be heard in our hearts, in our minds, that your spirit will give us wisdom and discernment. We pray for Andrew that the work that he has put in this week that we will hear your voice through his message. And take your word, Lord, this week, and let us be sanctuaries for your presence in the world. Let us be your presence in the midst of the world. In your name, amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning. It's good to open God's Word with you this morning. I want to start with a little piece of satire, uh, the onion. I'm sure some of you are familiar with this uh, publication. Uh, and let me emphasize again, this is satire. There's always the danger when you read this that people are like, oh, pastor said this. Uh, Stanford, California, the results of a new study published in the Journal of Woe, which should give you an indication that this is satire. Uh, researchers from Stanford University revealed Tuesday that Truly being seen still ranks among the worst possible experiences in human existence. We've found conclusive evidence that realizing somebody has managed to look past your protective facade and recognize you for who you are continues to be the most punishing and humiliating experience the human psyche is capable of withstanding, says lead researcher David Wynn, who noticed that the phenomena once again outranked the sensation of drowning, being on fire, and amputation of all your limbs without anesthetic, and narrowly edged out feeling as if no one sees you at all. Breaking your neck, getting mauled by a grizzly, losing your entire family in an accident that you caused, our research shows that they all pale in comparison with the agony of your personal desires, motivations, being perceived. 
Interestingly enough, we have found that the only worst possible human experience is seeing yourself for the miserable, weak little creature that you truly are. At press time, Wynne concluded that this is exactly why you should never let anyone get that close to you. Here's the interesting thing about that. Some of us relate to that. You know, we laugh because maybe it cuts a little too close to home. But we are coming to Exodus 25 to 40, which over the the next sort of 15 chapters, almost all of them, with the exception of 32, 33, and 34, uh, deal with the, the building of the tabernacle, this elaborate structure for the Israelites in the wilderness. And the point of it is, as we saw in verse 8, God says, build me a sanctuary that I may draw close and dwell in your midst. So it's not just that somebody else on the human plane would draw close to us and see us for who we truly are, but this is a, a promise, this is a, uh, a movement of Almighty God uh, who will draw close to us and see us for who we are. But as we move through this passage over the next several weeks, we're going to be taking different peeks into how this works. As we, as we move through it, we understand that it's actually, you know, far from the research that The Onion is uh, reporting, it's actually the most freeing thing that we can experience. It's actually the most beloved thing. It's, it's, the most, uh, it's the most caring thing that God can do for us as He moves in and He allows Himself to be seen and He sees us for who we truly are. So I want to dive into that a little bit this week. And, you know, my brain is just flooded with all sorts of information and tidbits. And, I mean, you can really geek out studying, you know, this part of Exodus and seeing all of the connections between, you know, Old Testament and New Testament. In some ways, this will be a little bit introductory for the next couple of weeks as we look at priests and their role, and we look at sacrifices and how they play out as as we uh, look at some of the other pieces connected with the tabernacle, the actual craftsmen who build it. Uh, But uh, we're, we're going to look at sort of the role of the tabernacle itself this morning. If you look at the passages, you see that 25 to 31 have to do with God's instructions to Moses. So this happens So remember, you know, all of this has been happening sort of immediately. It gets gets spread out for us as we read it, but God is coming to the Israelites right after He's led them out of Israel or out of Egypt, and He's given them all of these instructions. Now He takes Moses up, and for 40 days He's on top of this mountain, and He receives these instructions. And that's going to be a significant time frame when we get to 32, because we see that the Israelites get impatient with that. Then 32, 33, 34 happen. That's Israelites' disobedience and then their Moses' intercession and their return, God's forgiveness of them. 
Uh, and then in 35 to 40, we have, it's kind of a repeat of 25 to 31, but it's the instructions that were given in 25 to 31 being enacted in, uh, in 35 to 40. So there's a lot of repetition. So we'll see some of the passages that we'll draw in the next couple weeks will be from 25 to 31. Some will be from 35 to 40 because there's so much overlapping material. But I just want to emphasize a few things this morning. Uh, I should have arranged the outline differently in your bulletin. This first point is going to be very short. It's super interesting to me uh, that, you know, here we have this former slave nation being led out of Egypt, and now they are at the base of Mount Sinai. We know that as God led them out of Egypt, uh, He moved in the heart of the Egyptians, and we saw this a little bit last week, uh, to, to give of their wealth, uh, the Egypt being the strongest nation, the most powerful, the most wealthy nation on all the earth, to give of their wealth to the Israelites as they left. And so now you have this transformation, this formerly slave nation beaten down, we're told they're broken in spirit, uh, humbled in their hearts, uh, harsh slavery. Um, this nation is now a wealthy nation. Now, I mean, God has given them out of the abundance that the Egyptians have, and, and they're sitting pretty in terms of this world's good. Now, they are in the wilderness, but uh, they still are sitting pretty with regards to this world's goods. One of the very first things that God asks them to do, again, we're in Exodus 25, is, is to, to give back, to make a contribution, to share generously from their hearts. Speak to the people of Israel that they take from me, take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. Or when it comes to it in chapter 35, uh, Moses says to the congregation, this is the thing that the Lord has commanded. Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring it before the Lord's, let him bring it for the Lord's contribution. So interesting that God knows us so well uh, that He knows that, that our heart's tendency is to grab onto the things of this world. So, so immediately He moves into His people with grace and He says, I, I want to encourage generosity for you. I want to encourage you to, to have a loose holding, to hold on loosely to the things of this world, to bring a contribution, uh, to share, and, and let it be from your heart. This is very similar to the language that we get in uh, Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7, each one must give as he has made up in his mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Uh, and I just find this so interesting that in the narrative, this story as we're playing out, as God is seeking to build this tabernacle, this sanctuary, to draw close to His people, He, he connects this very thing with this, this act of, of obedience, this act of generosity, this act of worship where we bring our gifts before the Lord. 
think you recognize that in your own life, this tendency that we have to grasp on. That's why giving is just such a grace. And, and I'm not just talking about giving to churches. We've had opportunity uh, to give to uh, a building fund over and above some of the regular things, but I'm just talking about a, a generous overall nature in life where you see the opportunities around you, you see the opportunities to bless other people. You're driven not by accumulating, uh, not by, uh, you know, the one with the most toys wins. If you remember that bumper sticker from the 80s, I don't know if it's still around anymore or not, but we're not driven by that. We're, we're driven to give and to share and, and to do it as God moves our hearts. So that's all I'm going to say about that. But one of the things that we see is as God moves close and He builds His sanctuary, as He dwells in our midst, as we are known and seen by Him, He invites this generosity and to share. Now, I want to spend a lot more time on the second point. The second thing that we observe with the tabernacle is that God is, uh, in revealing Himself, in, in searching us, He's inviting us to see from His perspective. He's inviting us to see through His eyes, to see the world as He sees it. Now, what do I mean by that? As you look at the construction of the tabernacle, and, and this is really an amazing thing. Like you think about this, they're in the wilderness. Now they don't know that they're going to be there for 40 years at this time, but God knows. Uh, and He knows that it's going to need to be mobile, so contrast that with the uh, with the temple, the temple which is fixed, Mount Zion. Uh, the tabernacle is mobile and can move with them throughout the, uh, the wilderness. He, he builds this incredibly elaborate, struc elaborate structure, and it just seems in one sense kind of wasteful. But the fact that God uh, commands this, the fact that God invites this into being shows something of his values. He, he wants the people to know that he is worthy to be praised, that there is beauty, that there is honor, that there is kingship. So much of the, the linens and uh, the, the uh, thread and all of the working, that those stuff that you would find in a palace, uh, the, the ark as it's constructed has the appearance of a throne. So, we read, for instance, in uh, the next passage that's printed for you in 26, moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of twined linen, blue, purple, scarlet yarns. You shall make them with cherubim skillfully worked into them. The length of each curtain shall be 28 cubits, the breadth of each curtain four cubits. All of the curtains shall be about the same size. Five curtains shall be coupled to one another. The other five curtains shall be coupled to one another. You shall make loops of blue on the edge of the outermost curtain in the first set. Likewise, you shall make loops on the outermost curtain in the second set. Fifty loops shall make on one curtain, the fifty loops you shall make on the edge of the curtain that's in the second set, the loops shall be opposite one another, the loops, uh, or you shall make fifty clasps of gold, couple the curtains to one another with the clasps so that the tabernacle may be a single whole. Now there's a, there's a whole lot more of this kind of direction. 
couple of things that I just want to point out to you. One, I've already mentioned, I mean, this is a beautiful structure. Uh, it is something that is worthy of a king. Secondly, uh, it, it in itself depicts the universe that we live in. You see the, the different types of materials that are used. You've got these goat skins, you've got uh, ram's pelts, you've got the fine linen, you've got all of these different things. They're layered in, in four layers. The outside layer is much more coarse in terms of its material, uh, and, and as it moves inside, it gets more delicate, it gets more, uh, it gets more fine and, and reflecting of the glory. But there is a picture of the, of the universe in which God dwells. We, we've got the material things. We've got the heavenly, uh, the cherubim, as we've been looking at this morning throughout our worship service. They are woven into the very fabric. So you get this sense as you enter into this structure, as you enter into the presence of God, that heaven and earth come together. They come together in a unified whole, uh, and we see that God is the Lord of the universe, uh, that everything matters, that the material world matters, that it is all connected as, as one. And that's, that's important. It's important for us to understand that that's how God views the world. I'll talk about application of that in just a minute. The other thing that we recognize with the tabernacle is that not only does it depict sort of the universe, but it also harkens back to uh, the cover to the Garden of Eden, uh, and also looks forward then to the the heavenly realms that that come in as we think about the the new earth. Number of ways in which we see this. Uh, there's an entrance on the east. Uh, one enters the tabernacle moving from east to west. If you remember the Garden of Eden, uh, there was the entrance was on the east side. That's where the cherubim that we read held up. Uh, there's a tree in the middle of this tabernacle, the, the lampstand, the 75-pound piece of gold structure uh, that sits in the holy place. Uh, that is to be reminding of the tree of life uh, and, and its role, and we see that as we move forward. There is a tree in the heavenly realms as well. Uh, all of this garden imagery is woven into the fabric. There are trees, flowers, fruits. Uh, this is both at the tabernacle and then also in the temple as well, doors and pillars. Uh, some of the jewels, gold and onyx, like if you go back and you read Genesis 2, 12, we're, we're told that these are the, the gold, the jewels uh, that are there. Rivers flow from Eden through the garden, uh, later visions of the temple in Ezekiel, uh, Revelation, you know, from the throne of God we see this river, tabernacle, we have the basins of water, which, you know, all speak to this type of imagery that is there. And then, of course, as we've mentioned, just all of the cherubim that are around uh, guarding, watching over, observing what is going on, crying, holy, holy, holy. So, big picture here, you know, when we see through God's eyes, we see several things. We see that, we, we see the universe as a united whole. Uh, we see the glory of the Lord in so many different ways as it exists from the very Garden of Eden 
to the time in the wilderness, to the more permanent time in the temple, to the forever time that we come into the, you know, God's dwelling place with man uh, as we speak of the new creation, we think about heaven. Uh, so what do we learn from this? What, what are some things that we can observe as we make these connections to what God is, is doing? Four things for you here. The first is this. We're part of a story. Uh, as God enacts the, the initiatives of redemption, as He builds His relationship with the people, as He invites Himself to be known, as He uh, knows His people, He wants them to see, He wants us to see that what started in Eden will be finished in heaven. And that we're moving on throughout this story that God hasn't abandoned His processes, that God hasn't abandoned His people, that we haven't somehow moved from plan A to plan B. Uh, God is continuing to move us out into the story. This is why we spend time in, in the Old Testament. Uh, the Old Testament tells us about ourselves. The Old Testament uh, tells us about God's ark of redemption, and we are able to see that, and we, uh, we grasp onto, we, we love being part of the story. This is what we invite other people into. Like, our lives are not just fragmented existences in this world. As we're talking to college students, as we're talking uh, to uh, the, the guy who shares our cubicle at work, as we're talking to our neighbor, like, who are we? What, what, do we, what do we mean? How do we belong? How do we connect? How do we fit? Well, we're part of the story. Let's go look at it and let's see how God has continued to work with His people throughout the ages. We are part of a bigger story. Secondly, uh, we're, we're not to put divides where God has not. This is a, a little bit more of a philosophical observation, but I think it's really important. You know, when God builds this universe uh, and, and He invites all of the material of earth into this particular place, uh, God is is working against what the Greeks would later sort of establish, you know, the sacred-secular split, uh, where you have, you know, materialistic uh, world on one side, all of science, all of the things that you can see, feel, taste, touch, and then you have the spiritual realm on the other side. And the idea is, like, our bodies, you know, the stuff of this world, like, that, that is to be subjugated, even turned against, eschewed, but it's the spiritual stuff that really matters. You know, it's this, you know, these values uh, that really matter. And, and part of what God is doing here is He's saying, all of this is mine. You know, I, I created your, your souls as well as your bodies. Uh, I created uh, the, the worship of God, the glory, all that is to go on, uh, along with the trees and the goats and, you know, all of these different things. There, there's a unified whole to this world that we live in. Now, I said that's a little bit philosophical, uh, but it, it has so many implications, uh, so many implications that we see laid out in our life day by day by day. You know, this idea that, 
that there's the difference between science uh, and the physical realm and the values. We, we see that played out in the ideas of, of personhood and what that is. Like we, we have this theory that exists in our world that you can be a living being but still not be a person. There, there is the, the evidence of that split. There's this sort of fact-value split. So this is what opens a door to things like abortion uh, or, or infanticide or euthanasia. It's when you, you, you separate the physical uh, from the value uh, or from the spiritual, then you, you begin to live in this fragmented world. And, and one of the things that God is saying from the very beginning is, it's all mine. I created this universe and everything that is in it, and, and it all matters. When we build this picture of it, you're going to see heaven come to earth, and you're going to see earth as part of heaven. You know, it's really interesting in verse 8, 25 verse 8, God dwells in their midst. We see that again, Revelation 21, and I saw the new heavens and the new earth coming down from heaven where God makes His dwelling in the midst of His people. We oftentimes have this idea of heaven that it's something that we zip away to, uh, that we leave this earth, and we, we z- but that's not the biblical picture. The biblical picture is much more affirming of the world that we live in, of, of our physical bodies, of everything that we experience in this material world, and the worship of God in the wilderness helps us understand that. It helps us also, thirdly, live with a longing, an awareness of, and a longing for heaven. So again, when we make this divide, uh, when we set up those walls in, in ways that God doesn't want to, we, we get so focused on the here and now, and we're not thinking about uh, the age to come. We're not thinking about the importance of that. But, but what God is doing is He's building this. He's saying, listen, it it's all one. Yes, there is this reality of time, but don't be so bifurcated that you're not thinking about your present life in terms of eternity. Uh, you are to remember that what you experience right now, you are living in the presence of the Lord. So when you enter this, this tabernacle, you're going to see, you know, all of this heavenly, the colors that are used in that, it's this heavenly uh, material, heavenly pictures, and then the seraph and the cherubim and all of these things. And God wants us to live with an awareness of what's to come in our present life. And if you think about it, I mean, that changes everything. You know, we, we talked about, you know, giving, uh, sharing generously. When we hold on to stuff, when we're driven by accumulating stuff, we're not thinking about the age to come. We're thinking about building up for ourselves now. We're, we're focused on the present. But God wants us to see that, you know, at, at as much discontinuity as there may be in terms of our, our death and moving on into that, there's so much continuity, and that we are to see heaven as part of our present reality, how we go through suffering. You know, this is why Paul can say it's a light and momentary affliction, because he's living with an awareness of heaven. Uh, Peter can say, or Paul can say, I, I long to throw off 
Interestingly enough, Peter in 2 Peter uses the term tent for body. Uh, it's the same word that translates tabernacle. You know, I long to, to be rid of my, my body. Paul says a very similar thing uh, because I'm longing to be, you know, in the presence of God, having what this tabernacle, what the temple, what the, the Scriptures as we see what it points to, have that be a reality. And that's my invitation to you, you know, just, you know, very practically spend some time just reflecting on, you know, write an essay, write a poem, write a song if you're uh, inclined that way. Um, You can build something if you want. I could not build something, but you can maybe figure that out. You know, just that, that, that helps you long for heaven. And make that a reality. Think about it. Think about it in midst of your daily, of the daily grind, the, the daily things that lay before us, work, family, all of those things. Thirdly. Fourthly, and I'll, and I'll mention this, we'll, we'll kind of bring this back around. When we talk about the tabernacle, um, and, and this is one of the reasons why you can't sort of make a a straight line application. So you take the contributions for the tabernacle and you make a straight line contribution towards a building fund. Uh, You know, our, our buildings here don't play the same role as the tabernacle or the temple did in the Old Testament. You know, our, our buildings here are tools. Uh, we use them. You know, we're, we're thrilled with, with what God has done in, in providing this new space. We want to use it uh, to reach, uh, you know, to welcome in and, and reach people who don't have church homes or who are malnourished in their churches or whatever it might be. I mean, we want to use this as a tool. But it is not the temple. It is not the tabernacle, and the reason for that is you are the tabernacle. You are the, the living stones, Peter talks about in, in uh, 1 Peter chapter 1. The living stones that are built up, they're housing the Holy Spirit. When God dwells near, He dwells near into our hearts. And so, all of these things that we're saying about the tabernacle... These are marching orders for us as believers. If you've surrendered your heart and life to the Lord Jesus, then you are the tabernacle and you fulfill this role in the world that you live in. You are to speak to the unity of all that God has created. You are to point to the reality that we are part of a story. It's a story that's going somewhere, that there is a heavenly aspect to that reality. You are to be a welcoming place where God can meet with His people. As we look at this and we realize that transition we realize that, that we are the tabernacle. And all of this hinges on the very heart of the tabernacle, which is what? It's the holy of holies. Uh, it's the place where God is met most directly. It's the place where we find 
the, the mercy seat, the Ark of the Covenant. I'm going to read to you from uh, chapter 37. You can also find this back in uh, chapter 25. There's a, a couple paragraphs there. But Bezalel, who is the craftsman that makes the temple, he made the Ark of acacia wood, two cubits and a half with its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, a cubit and a half its height. He overlaid it with pure gold inside and outside, made a molding of gold around it. He cast for it four rings of gold for its feet, two rings on its one side, two rings on the other. He made poles of acacia wood, overlaid them with gold, and put the poles into the rings on the sides to carry the ark. He made a mercy seat of pure gold, two cubits and a half with its length, cubit and a half its breadth. He made two cherubim of gold. He made them of hammered work on the two ends of the mercy seat, one cherub on the one end, the other cherub on the other end. Uh, with one piece, of one piece with the mercy seat, he made the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings. With their faces one to another toward the mercy seat were the faces of the cherubim. The very heart of the tabernacle was the Holy of Holies. Only the high priest could go in there only once a year. He took some of the blood from the sin offering, and he would sprinkle the mercy seat. Uh, and, and it's that mercy seat where, where God would meet with his people, where God would speak to them of the forgiveness of sins, of the mercy that he had for a people whose sins have separated them from God, as the curtains signified that, that separation. And, and it's at that mercy seat that we see most clearly the role of our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, Jesus... Uh, came from heaven to earth, and he tabernacled among us. Uh, that's the word that John uses in John 1. Jesus is this meeting place between God and man because he is the spotless lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the, the great high priest, the one who is worthy to enter the holy of holies and make sacrifice. And it's here at the, at the heart of the tabernacle, the heart of what would become the temple, that we meet the one who fulfills everything everything that the tabernacle points to. He fulfills uh, the great need that we have. That's Isaiah 59 that I quoted a little bit earlier. Our iniquities, our sins have made separation uh, with our God. And the only thing that will allow God to draw near, the only thing that will give us sanctuary is the blood of a spotless lamb poured out on the mercy seat. Listen to Hebrews chapter 9, when Christ appeared as the great high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Brothers and sisters, as we come to this tabernacle, this elaborate tent in the wilderness that the Israelites would take, it speaks to us of God's 
uh, willingness to draw near to a people that had rejected Him. God's willingness to draw near to a people who was beaten down, broken. They were worshiping false gods in Egypt. But God is drawing near and He's saying, I know that you'll never keep the law, which was one of the things that was in the, uh, in the Ark of the Covenant. I know that you'll never be able to keep it. But there is this mercy seat between me and you and the blood of a spotless lamb, the blood of an atoning sacrifice and a propitiation, if you like that word. If you want to go even further, a hilasterion, right, in, in Greek. The, that, that blood will satisfy, will satisfy the just wrath against sin, and you can be accepted without shame, without guilt, as a child of God. That's my great prayer, is that all of us would, would recognize what God is doing. He is offering us sanctuary. He's offering us peace with the living God. He's offering us uh, to be known, truly known in His presence and to be loved. Some of you will be familiar with uh, Victor Hugo's uh, story, um, The Hunchback of Notre Dame. It's one of those stories that like stuck in my mind anyway when I was thinking of this concept of sanctuary. Uh, there you see Quasimodo uh, seeking sanctuary inside the cathedral of Notre Dame for himself, for Esmeralda, this uh, gypsy who was threatened to be killed by evil prefect Frollo. Uh, but uh, Hugo says this. He says, within the walls of Notre Dame, the prisoner was secure from molestation from the crowd. The cathedral was a place of refuge. Human justice dared not cross its threshold. And it's such a beautiful picture of our protection in the finished work of Christ. We have sanctuary. God has enacted His justice. And we are set free. And this is what the tabernacle is pointing us to. We'll look at it throughout the next few weeks in a little bit more detail. But may our hearts be enlarged uh, with just the mercy uh, of our Lord. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for where it pushes us in terms of understanding what it is to be known by a holy God, what it is to be invited into the presence, uh, what it is to experience the finished work of Christ, the great tabernacle, uh, the great lamb, the great high priest, what it means for us to now carry that story on as we go forward, to, uh, to see the, the unity of the creation that you have made. Lord, we pray for your mercy. We pray for your grace as we seek to live that out. Father, I would pray this morning for any, of, uh, any among us who are bearing the shame, uh, maybe of failures, Lord, I, I ask that they would find a, a fresh fountain of mercy uh, at your mercy seat. Uh, Father, I pray for those who maybe have never known uh, the, the work of Christ in this way. We ask that, uh, that you would open their heart afresh 
uh, to see and to hear, to recognize the story that you are weaving throughout creation, a story that speaks to your glory. We pray all of these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.